curious to know if any of you have ever heard of vampire finches. The tiny blood slurping bird that terrorizes the Galapagos. That's according to one science journalist who goes on to say it could be First of all, I should tell you that I walked into the living room one day and my wife was watching a documentary about vampire finches. We've been sleeping in separate rooms ever since. (laughs) I kid, but I thought, that's a great sermon illustration. I don't know for what, but it's a great sermon illustration. Actually, I do know for what, and I'll share with you in just a minute. But first first of all, let me continue to quote this journalist. It could be that the vampire finches are the veritable borgs of the Galapagos. Resisting them is futile. They swarm in astounding numbers. They outnumber every other finch species on all the islands combined. So it may be that putting up a fight is simply worthless. Fight off one vampire and others will just take its place like miniature hydras. It might also be an extension of cleaning behavior. I'll interrupt the quote for a second. They started out doing them a service, helping them, and then this. It may well be that the vampire finches once once provided the service to seabirds before realizing there's a better payday in digging deeper for blood. In a lighthearted way, the journalist went on to say, the vampire bird's favorite song is Slayer's Raining Blood, and its second favorite song is A Rush of Blood to the Head by Coldplay. I appreciate a little bit of lightheartedness along the way. You say, so how is this going to fit with anything that we're going to talk about at Omaha Bible Church? They once served a good purpose, or so it would seem. And then in time, they took advantage and began doing something deadly and grotesque and harmful. And what I would like to point out to you is the fact that that's commonly, oftentimes, how religion works. You receive help, and it helps you. A religious leader gives you help, and it helps you. But before long, uh, they're, if you will, sucking the lifeblood out of you, and it becomes perverse, and they're not helping you. They're actually harming you. And for that reason, I think it's a good illustration. And today, in Matthew chapter 21, we're going to be talking about the religious leaders in the nation of Israel, or for the nation of Israel. And Jesus really lets them have it. Because while they are supposed to be helping the people, they're supposed to be pointing people toward the one true and living God. They're supposed to be in the temple uh, offering sacrifice, pointing to atonement that would ultimately come through the Lamb of God. Instead, they're not helping people any longer. They're taking advantage of them and they're preying upon them. And it's a whole lot of awfulness. And so that's what we're going to be talking about today. As we think about Jesus, Jesus is going to really let those religious leaders have it. You're supposed to be helping people. And instead, you are spiritually perverse, and you're doing spiritually perverse things to these people all along. They think they're getting the truth from you. So I would like you to think in those terms when we think about Matthew chapter 21, and Jesus, out of love for his people, is really letting the religious leaders have it. If you will, even think with me about the temple at its best. It was supposed to, Israel, with its temple, its priests, its sacrifices, and all of those things in Jerusalem, at its purest, at its best, was to anticipate the ultimate temple, John chapter 2, Jesus. 
the ultimate Passover lamb, Jesus, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, at its best, in its purest form, it being good from God, was meant to anticipate the ultimate one who would come and we would have a mediator through Christ, the ultimate one. But it's not at its best. Now it seems to be at its worst and Jesus is pronouncing condemnation. It's served its purpose and now it's no longer in any good way serving its purpose and so it's time to, if you will, shut it down. The expiration date has arrived uh, today we're going to celebrate communion and we're talking about the one uh, Jesus said uh, this is uh, that, that he is the mediator of the new covenant. It's in his blood. So again, at its best, it was temporary, but it's not at its best. And so Jesus is in effect pronouncing judgment, condemnation, because it's now time for us to look to him as the ultimate Passover lamb. So if you have a Bible, you can look at Matthew chapter 21. If we're going to look at two scenes, um, both of these scenes reveal the unique and legitimate authority of Jesus, not like these religious leaders who are illegitimate at this point in time, but two scenes that show his unique and legitimate authority. And we'll see it's the cursing of a tree and the confrontation with leaders. The cursing of a tree and the confrontation, confrontation with leaders. So let's first focus on the first scene, the cursing of a tree. Matthew 21, verse 18. In the morning, as he was returning to the city, he became hungry. Ever so quickly, he's entered into Jerusalem. We just saw that. Um, he has been welcomed. They've said, our God saves, Hosanna. By some, uh, he's been questioned by others. He's been opposed by still others. Uh, he's driven the money changers out of the temple. He's pronounced that form of judgment. He's not been altogether pleased with the state of things to understate it. So he's entered into Jerusalem for the last time during Passover, which makes sense because he is the Passover lamb. Again, First Corinthians 5. So here he is the next day having stayed on the outskirts of the city, and it says he became hungry. Then, then let's keep reading in verse 19. And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said to it, May no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. There's our first scene. What should we make of it? What should we make of such a scene? A random act of frustration because Jesus is hangry? Well, I once knew a man um, who because his professor told him from this passage that this is proof that Jesus was not an environmentalist, the man said, this is why I am now denying the faith. And I kid you not. But that professor is not alone. New Testament commentator Klausner calls it a gross injustice on a tree, which was guilty of no wrong and had but performed its natural function. Another commentator, New Testament commentators, people sell, sell these books. Uh, Manson, not the other Manson, but Manson comments, it is a tale of miraculous power wasted in the service of ill temper. For the supernatural energy employed to blast the unfortunate tree might have been more usefully expended in forcing a crop of figs out of season. And as it stands, is simply incredible. 
Well, I won't quote any more such quotations to you, but I would like to suggest to you that if Jesus did this, and I don't think he did, just to show he's sovereign Lord of creation, it would have been fine for him to do. Colossians 1 says, he is the creator of all of it. It's his. So if he wanted to have this be a random act of sovereignty, but that's a contradiction, um, it would be his prerogative to do it. It most certainly would be his prerogative to do it. He's the Lord of all. It belongs to him. He's free to do with what belongs to him, whatever he wants to do with what belongs to him, and it would be good and right based upon the fact that he does it. But I don't think that's what he's up to. In context, in context, he remember, he just overturned the tables, drove out the money changers. He is not pleased with the current spiritual condition of the nation of Israel and certainly not pleased with its leaders. So there, there's one side of the context. We also know that in Matthew 24, we will get there someday, I promise. But in Matthew 24, he will pronounce judgment upon the nation, so much so in Matthew 24, that this temple is going to be destroyed. No stone unturned. So when I read it in that light, and, and when I read it in light of Old Testament prophecy, where Israel is sometimes likened to a fig tree, and when the fig tree doesn't bear figs, it's false advertising. It looks alive, it has leaves. But it's not doing what it's meant to do. We have it on good authority in the book of Jeremiah, prophetic anticipation that it's going to mean judgment. When you say you offer life and you belong to the one true and living God, but everything you do and say contradicts it, it's going to mean judgment. I read our passage in light of that. If you want to, you can go ahead and turn to Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 8, verses 5 to 13. And as you're turning there, if you would like to turn there, um, so you don't take my word for it, I'll read a commentary that I quote, quote it for you that I think is paying attention to context and dealing um, earnestly and honestly with our context. The best explanation is to see the miracle as an acted out parable. I thought that was a really good way to put it. It's an acted out parable. Jesus' hunger provides the occasion for his use of this teaching device. The fig tree represents Israel, Hosea 9, Nahum 3. The tree is fully leafed out and in such a state would one would normally expect to find something edible. This symbolizes the hypocrisy and sham of the nation of Israel at this point in time which made her ripe for the judgment of God. Jeremiah chapter 8. I'm going to start at the end, if you will, and then we'll go back because I want want you to see it from the beginning. In verse 13, it says, When I would gather them, declares the Lord, there are no grapes on the vine, nor figs on the fig tree. So that's where we're getting that idea from. And if we go back to verse 5, this is not a a pretty uh, prophecy. Why then has this people turned away in perpetual backsliding? They hold fast to deceit. They refuse to return. I have paid attention and listened, and they have not spoken rightly. No man relents of his evil, saying, What have I done? Everyone turns to his own course, like a horse plunging headlong into battle. Even the stork in the heavens knows her times, and the turtle dove, swallow, and crane keep the time of their coming. But my people know not the rules of the Lord. 
How can you say we are wise and the law of the Lord is with us? But behold, the lying pen of the scribes has made it into a lie. The wise men shall be put to shame. They shall be dismayed and taken. Behold, they have rejected the word of the Lord. So what wisdom is in them? Therefore, I will give their wives to others. This is, this is defeat in warfare. And their friends, their fields to conquerors. Because from the least to the greatest, everyone is greedy for unjust gain. From prophet to priest, everyone deals falsely. They have healed the wound of my people lightly, saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. Were they ashamed when they committed abomination? No, they were not at all ashamed. They did not know how to blush. Therefore, they shall fall among the fallen. When I punish them, they shall be overthrown, says the Lord. When I would gather them, declares the Lord, there are no grapes on the vine nor figs on the fig tree. Even the leaves are withered and what I gave them has passed away from them. Long text, but I wanted you to see it and I wanted you to see it in, in, in a sense of its awfulness. They're in a state of spiritual shambles, according to that prophetic text, and Jesus, looking to gather them, borrowing from imagery used in his earthly ministry, here's, here's their current state. It's awful. So I have to, with a, a, a small dose of integrity, reading it in context, even if I'm just pretending to be a historian, to say, he's pronouncing judgment not on the tree as an act in and of itself, but representatively because of the state of the nation. It's utterly perverse. And again, I would read it in light of Matthew 24 as well. We won't read it right now, but Matthew 24 verses 1 and 2. Not, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. So back in its best day, during its best days, let's say, never meant to be the end game. Temple looking forward to the ultimate place to meet with God temple. But it's not at its best. It's at its worst, which signifies it's now time for it to be done. Enter the mediator of the new covenant I would even remind you, even the old covenant talks about a new covenant. There's an end to it, and the, the end has come. Jesus, now center stage, the faithful servant, the faithful son. Well, now before we move on to the next scene, uh, we have a scene in our passage, if it were in the 21st century or 20th century perhaps, of dumb and dumber. If you don't know what I mean by dumb and dumber, um, the disciples are really slow on the uptake. The the disciples are kind of dim-witted spiritually sometimes, and we're going to see see that happen here. So I'm trying to be inclusive here and include everybody, dumb and dumber, slow on the uptake, dim-witted. Um, fair enough. Everybody kind of understand. Um, and I'm not the only one that thinks that's what happens here. Um, verse 20 says, when the disciples saw it, Jesus cursed the fig tree, they marveled, saying, How did the fig tree wither at once? Let's pause just for a moment. In other words, how'd you do that? Well, I'm calling them dumb and dumber. Spiritually 
slow on the uptake, dim-witted because he's been doing, he's been raising the dead, he's been healing people, he's been providing supernaturally, uh, he's been doing all sorts of miraculous, th- miraculous things. And so he curses, I mean, this is kind of like low-end miracle, if you will. But sometimes we are slow spiritually as fallen human beings and they're slow here. And it's, how'd you do that? Instead of seeing what it symbolizes and saying, oh, we get it. It's looking at the parable, if you will, in and of itself as if it's not parabolic. But Jesus, who's kind and gracious and merciful and condescending and causing all things to work together for good for those who love him and those who've been called according to his purpose, does give them an answer. And he says in verse 21, And Jesus answered, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. What do you suppose he means? Well, even people whose commentaries I read who say you should always take the Bible literally, don't take this literally. Bible-believing people who believe in all the miracles would have us to know things like this. Within Judaism outside of Judaism, during this time before and after, there were common sayings. When you're talking about powerful kings, powerful people, they have so much power they could even move mountains. I think that probably is a good reasonable conclusion. He's he's borrowing common verbiage. You can do great, mighty things if you trust in me. I think that's probably what he's up to. I'll be the first one to say, I think if God wants to have us move mountains, He could have us move mountains. Um, But what we don't have in the book of Acts is um, we don't have examples of the the disciples having a, a very amazing ministry of killing fig trees or fruit trees. There, there's, there's none of that. Um, in the book of Acts, we don't have lots of examples. It's not um, apostles and sons excavating ministry. Uh, and they just show up on the job and do this and it's all done. Um, I'm being kind of silly, but you don't have examples of that. I, I think he's making a profound point. If you trust me, you, you're going to do great things. And these apostles would, in fact, do the great things. And that baton ends up getting passed to us. I remind you of things greater than even these physical things, of things like he spoke of in chapter 16 and in chapter 18. You have the power and authority because of gospel preaching to unlock heaven and to close heaven. Matthew 18 and 16. I think that probably is more along the lines of what he's up to here. Again, God can do whatever he wants to do, um, but it doesn't seem to be the idea of let's move that mountain over here and rearrange things. We actually don't even have Jesus doing those kinds of things. It seems that he's making a profound point about how important it is to trust in him and do extraordinarily powerful things. God can do whatever he would like to do. Don't get me wrong. And Jesus could have rearranged mountains if that's what he wanted to do. But it seems to be he's making a point 
about trust and prayer. And I would cross-reference to a text like 1 John chapter 5, verse 14. If we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. Would have been nice, though, back in the day when we had to have, I think it cost, I forgot now, $50,000 to have dirt moved around here on this 11 acres. Would have been nice. God could have done it. Um, but we paid the 50 grand. And God provided that way. Okay, let's move on to the second scene. Now, the second scene revealing the authority of Jesus. So first we see the authority of Jesus by, yes, authority over nature, but more profoundly, authority over people who are part of the right religion, saying, you're done. We are done here. We're moving on. You, you have to have unique authority to be able to do that. And we're going to see unique authority with confronting leaders. Verse 23 says, scene number two, and when he entered the temple the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching. If we look at the other gospel accounts, they're not the only ones. You also have the teachers of the law. And so that's why the conclusion is drawn that if you have all of those groups involved here, you have what would have been called the Sanhedrin. That becomes significant because if those are the people involved and they are given all the gospel accounts, you have the authorities so the authority, speaking authoritatively when it comes to the nation of Israel, and what do the authorities, speaking authoritatively, do? They come up to Jesus who is teaching, and they're going to interrupt Him. And they're going to say in verse 23, and said, by what authority, so the authorities are saying to Him, by what authority are you doing these things, and who gave you this authority? Which in some ways makes sense. Even though we think these guys are spiritually dim-witted and shallow and empty and we would conclude rightly. But they are asking a good question. Who gave you the right? Who put you in charge? Who gave you the authority to do these things? Because to do what you've been doing calls for authority. To say that this is corrupt and perverse and drive them out and turn the tables upside down, that, that, that would require authority. And they know they didn't give Jesus this authority and they didn't give Jesus the authority to teach in the temple. And as one of my friends used to like to say, and I think it's a pretty good saying, it's always about authority. Which is probably an overstatement. But so many times it's about authority. Especially think about in religion. Where does the authority lie? Where does the authority lie? Now I want you to also know that if we were to cross-reference text, Luke's account, says Jesus is teaching, and not only is he teaching, we could speculate what is he teaching, probably the same kind of things he's been teaching. Luke goes on to say he's teaching and he's preaching the gospel, which I think is worth noting because he, he's teaching good things, right? He, he's, not in, he's not in fire and brimstone mode, though he, he goes there, right? He's saying good things. Good news. This should be something that they would say, this is what, this is good news. This is positive. The good news of the kingdom. Deliverance. Deliverance from oppression. Deliverance finally through the king that we've been waiting for, the Messiah. He's saying good things. And they say, who gave you the right to say good things? Which I think is worth 
noting because it kind of shows the underlying perversity of the whole thing. If he's really and truly good and he's preaching good news about salvation, redemption, deliverance, these guys, it it, it exposes their fraudulence. He's giving good things to people, but what are they doing? They're robbing people of good things. So what started out as good is no longer good. What started out as helpful for people and designed to be helpful is not helpful for people. And so Jesus speaks good gospel news and they interrupt him. Who gave you the authority? By what authority? Now, just as an exercise, knowing what we know about Jesus, before we get to his answer, Jesus could have said, Jesus could have said, I, unlike you, teach with absolute authority, Matthew chapter 7. Jesus could have said, I not only have authority, and from God, mind you, but I have authority to forgive sin, which is the authority of God, Matthew 9 chapter, chapter 9 verse 6. He didn't say that here. Jesus could have said, I have all authority. He will say that in Matthew 28, 18. Jesus could have said here that he has authority even over demons. Because he did, but he doesn't say it here. Luke chapter 4, verse 36. For that matter, his authority is over all, not just demons. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 20 to 23. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 22. Jesus could have said, but he doesn't hear, that he even has authority to execute judgment. John chapter 5, verse 27. Jesus could have said, but he doesn't hear, that he has authority even over his own life and death. John chapter 10, verse 18. Jesus could have said, though he doesn't hear, that his authority is such that it assures the salvation of God's elect. John 17, verse 2. But he doesn't say it here. Jesus could have said, but he doesn't say it here, that the authority of the one true God demands that they come to that God through his Son, who is Jesus himself, Jude one twenty five. And I will stop talking about what Jesus could have said, but he doesn't say here. But I wanted to remind you of all of the things Jesus has been saying and that have been said about Jesus. And it's been authority, 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 authority. Because so oftentimes it's about authority. And it is about authority here because we're talking about eternal life. We're talking about the right religion, the people with the right book, and it has run its course and it, serve, it has served its purpose and now it has become corrupt, which is a fitting time for Jesus to step in and have, be, have, him, have him show himself to be the Passover lamb. So how does he respond? Instead, in verse 24, Jesus answered them, I also will ask you one question. And if you tell me the answer, then I also will tell you by what authority I do these things. Did you notice that even in saying what he's saying, he's showing his authority? I'll dictate the terms here. So Jesus doesn't stoop down into their trap. Jesus is doing what he talked about in Matthew 7. 
He's holding on to his pearls. Sometimes the Proverbs say, answer a fool according to their folly. Sometimes the Proverbs say, don't answer a fool according to his folly. And we can see here that Jesus is doing the latter. By doing all of this, Jesus isn't the mean guy. I would say Jesus is kind, gracious, merciful, and loving toward his own by exposing the fraudulent who harm people even though they say they're helping people think vampires. The birds we saw. They need to be exposed. Maybe there was good initially, but it's not so anymore. But here's the question. Verse 25. The baptism of John... Where did it come from? From heaven or from man? Do, 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 do. But it would have been a lot more serious than a game show. We learned about John. He means John the Baptist. John the Baptist. We learned about John the Baptizer. Matthew chapter 3. And regarding John the Baptizer in Matthew 3, it was for this is spoken, who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah. So according to Messianic prophecy, we have John the Baptist coming before him. We learned all Jerusalem was going out to him, to his baptism. And then not only that, it says at the end of John chapter 3, in that section in verse 17, he saw the Spirit of God descend like a dove and coming to rest on Jesus. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Matthew 11 says John is the greatest one to ever have lived up until his point in time. It says this in Matthew 11:13 for all the prophets and the law prophesied until John and if you are willing to accept it John himself is Elijah who was to come. So when Jesus says, "All right, what do you make of John the Baptist?" Think about it with me if you would. Jesus is the ultimate David, the ultimate Messiah. Well, John the Baptist, when it comes to, to the prophetic anticipation, he's the ultimate prophet. All other prophets have come and they've been, there have been legitimate prophets, but John the Baptist is the greatest because he's the forerunner because he announces the coming of the Messiah. And so all prophets have been anticipating him. And so it's good for Jesus to say, all right, here's the test. Tell me your opinion about John the Baptist. John chapter 1, verse 29 says, this is John the Baptist. This is what John the Baptist said. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is He of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness. John says that, that this is the Son of God. Oh, if you're, if you're the religious leaders, you're saying, oh man... And John the Baptist has been martyred, and people are all, sometimes people become all the more um, 
defensive and committed to martyrs. That's definitely happened here. So in our text, verse 25, the latter part, they discussed it among themselves. Saying, if we say from heaven, he will say to us, why then did you not believe him? Because John, again and again and again and again, said, he is the one. This is not about me. It is about him. Him, 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 him. He's the Messiah. But the religious leaders, if they say, we believe John the Baptist was the greatest prophet ever, a true prophet even. Well, now they have to say Jesus is the Messiah. But if they say he's not of God, which is what they want to do, they're in trouble politically. They're in trouble with the people. We know they're in trouble politically and with the people because of what it says in verse 26. But if we say from man, we are afraid of the crowd. Yeah, they're afraid of the crowd. Luke chapter 20 says they're afraid that the crowd is going to stone them. So this is not about truth. This is about fear and not fear of God, but about fear of human beings. If they acknowledge John, they have to acknowledge Jesus. If they don't acknowledge John, they're going to lose their lives. That's their fear anyway. Because it says in verse 26, for they all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus. We're agnostics. That's how they answered. That's what it means to say, we don't know. They claimed ignorance. We don't know. Pretty ironic, right? Ironic to think in terms of Jesus didn't show up and do um, some spurious, questionable, sleight of hand, hand maybe miracles in somebody's basement if they had basements. Jesus is a public figure. Jesus has done the things that he's done in front of enemies, in front of friends, in front of all different kinds of people, non-religious people, people who are part of different religions, people who are Jews. And it's been over years now, again and again and again and again and again, he's shown himself to be a credible object of faith. John the Baptist had a public ministry as well. All the people are impressed that he's a true prophet. No, we don't know. It just shows that sometimes the we don't know answer is sometimes earnest. But here's an example of the we don't know answer isn't earnest. It's about maintaining authority. It's about maintaining power instead of earnestness and sincerity and honesty. Again, I didn't say always and never. I would say that about certain things. But here... Here we see a good example of religious leaders wanting to stay in power even though they should not be in power. If they were to level with being truthful. And so what does Jesus say in verse 26? And he said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Got to love the way Jesus does everything, but you got to love the way he answers. So many times Jesus was more than forthright going to whatever means necessary to help and to answer people's questions. 
But he knows their hearts. He knows what lies behind the whole thing. And so he says, I'm not going to answer your question. He doesn't say, I don't have any authority. But as the text says, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Again and again and again. Have you not read? Have you not read? Have you not read? Have you not read to the leaders? And he knows they had read. They're just not willing to be honest and earnest. And he could, in effect, say, he doesn't have to say it, but because of his earthly public ministry, historic ministry, have you not seen, have you not seen, have you not seen, have you not seen? He could also say, have you not heard, have you not heard, have you not heard, have you not heard? Yes, 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 and yes, 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 and yes, 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 yes. And we know enough to, to know when they say, well, we, we just don't know. It's a cop-out. It's bogus. It's lame. It's perverse. It's wrong-headed. I would encourage you again, Jesus isn't the bad guy here. Jesus is the good guy. <laughs> Exposing the fraudulent, harmful ones in the name of God, attached to the religion that has been the right one. For the good and benefit of people like us to say thank you, Jesus, for being truthful and rescuing us from manipulation and power mongers and manipulators. You're a good and earnest Savior who cares for sheep unlike these fake shepherds who maybe started out doing the right thing. At least certainly their line did to begin with. Maybe a few closing thoughts about authority just as we kind of wrap this up. I'm going to take away this from this text. The authority of Christ is a threat to those seeking their own authority. The authority of Christ is a threat to those seeking their own authority. So many times, so many times it is about authority. So when people deny his exclusivity, when they deny that conscious faith is required for salvation, when they deny his deity, they deny his humanity, they deny his power to forgive by grace alone, through faith alone, because of his work alone. Jesus has been clear enough on all of these things that we have to say, you know what, this is about authority. Well, the authority of Christ is a threat to those seeking their own authority. I love it when pastors are asked questions that don't have to do with the Bible and about Christ and about eternal life, things that are, that are explicit in the Scripture when they're asked and pastors say, I don't know. Pastor, what should I do? I can't tell you. Because I have no authority in the matter. It would be my opinion. Maybe you should ask someone else. I like it when pastors do that. But when something is clear in Scripture, they can say, you can know this, salvation is of the Lord. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, and on account of the finished work of Christ alone. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. You can have assurance, not at the end of your Christian experience only, but even at the beginning. Thus saith the Lord. I like it when pastors do that. It's not their inherent authority. We call it ministerial authority, servant authority, because it comes from Scripture. But I also like it when Christians do this, not just pastors. 
If somebody asks you about something that the Bible isn't clear about, be careful if you're answering in the name of God. Be careful. The religious leaders here assumed authority in realms they were never given authority. And then not only that, they started exercising authority that would actually contradict the Bible. Sometimes it's a slippery slope. To disagree with the actions or words of Jesus is to reject His authority, His legitimacy. And we see here in this example, it's not a good look. Maybe a couple of other things. When a person rejects the truth of Jesus at one level, they should not expect to receive more. They reject it. And he says, okay, then I'm not going to give you any more revelation in this case. Another takeaway would be for me, Jesus does not always answer his critics. Sometimes he does. Sometimes he doesn't. Jesus sees through so-called agnosticism. And finally, just because Jesus doesn't formally address those who reject him here doesn't mean he never will. Matthew 24 is coming. 70 AD is coming. And he is coming. And one day every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. So just because he doesn't deal with everyone immediately with justice doesn't mean he, he won't. The clock is ticking. For these. Maybe finally, let's also be encouraged by the fact that there are many who reject Christ at this point in time who will come to believe in Him. That's what we have in the book of Acts. Thousands and thousands and thousands of people by God's mercy and by God's grace seeing Him for who He is, trusting in Him. Not because they're better, but because of God's significant grace in their life. We should pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for time together. Thank you for a a bold and clear Savior in the Lord Jesus. Thank you that he loved us enough to speak the truth in a way that would protect those who belong to him, that it would expose frauds for being fraudulent. And thank you that he is kind and merciful. Thank you for the fact that we can trust in him. Thank you for the fact that here we stand on the other side of things as those who are part of the new covenant And even now as we eat and drink in remembrance of Him, we are celebrating the new covenant reality. Thank you for these things. Encourage us, help us, sustain us. Even as we eat and drink, may the Spirit of God work in our lives to strengthen us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.